0: Hey everybody. Good morning. Let people come in as they're able uh, to put in a front row just so that you know you're not in it. <laughs> and we have a place for people to come. I guess Ally's here. Um, I'm Father Matt. If we have a met, it's good to see you all uh, to be here. We started uh, last week with kind of an introduction, uh, we're going to get that onto our website. Um, that's sort of, um, me, that's me um, sort of, it's going to happen. I don't know what is going to happen, but it'll happen. Um, we got to edit it down and get it ready. Um, and last week we said a few things that I, that I think bear repeating for the sake of repetition and also for the sake of, if you weren't there last week, uh, it would be good to hear these things. Um, I decided that the class on how to read the Bible wasn't going to try to talk about all of the Bible in six weeks, just a little ambitious, Um, but rather talk about a really um, particular text of scripture that most of us who've been in churches for a while are familiar with and see what that text can reveal to us about how to read the Bible. So starting from a text and working up rather than starting from way up and then working down. So that's the methodology. And we decided on Romans, I decided on Romans 1, uh, 18 through Romans 3, 31. So it's still a pretty big part of a text, but it's smaller than all of the scriptures, right? Um, Two, uh, the the title comes from feedback I've gotten from people in our church of like, hey, um, I think I used to know how to read the Bible and I don't anymore. So the title is an homage, as the French say, to that. But it's not. Um, int- we're not intending to answer all those questions. And also, the third thing I want to say is, I want us. I, I would like to invite us to uh, explore what I feel like is a more faithful way of interpreting the scriptures and a more faithful way of uh, proposing different readings of scripture. Which is, I I have no desire, and I'm making no promises. to to deliver to you the right way to read this text. I don't think I have access to that, and I'm not sure that's necessary. Both of those things are pretty revolutionary from where some of us come from. I don't know if I have access to the right way of reading the text, and I don't know if it's necessary that you or we have that in order to be faithful Christians. What I want to propose or invite us into is using uh, the tools of that we've developed and we've received on how to read scripture. What can those show us about this text that we're talking about? And what does that open up for us and close down for us and explore it together kind of in a freedom, kind of in an area of playfulness rather than science. Does that make sense? So this is less of a courtroom and, and more of, um, it's more having fun being playful. All right. I, I think we said that last week and I wanted to make sure that I got that out there. And I'm so excited you're here. And those of us uh who are joining on Zoom, I'm excited you're here too. Um, I know you're here differently, but here nonetheless, all the same. Uh I am so I'm really excited. Hey Chris, there's a the front row has been reserved for you. People <laughs> tried to sit here, and I said Chris Crossley's coming, so you can't sit there. Um, <laughs> Oh, okay. I see. All right. Um, I'm so delighted to do this. Like, I, I know this is a long preamble, but I have such gratitude in my heart for all y'all and for the chance to do this and even a time massage thing in our parlor. We still have this room to meet in, which is totally sufficient. And I heard birds chirping this week and daffodils are popping through the ground, and it's gonna be 56 degrees today. And like I'm just really excited. Um and the uh, Adderall Cinder release is kicking in. So I'm really excited to be here. Let me pray for us, and then we will. I'll tell us. I'll tell you all we good thing. So let's just be quiet and still for a moment. <sighs> Breathe, Lord. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the scriptures. <laughs> we thank you for this church where we get a chance to be together and talk about it, and learn, and question, and propose. And discover what a gift, what a gift it is to be your body, what a gift it is to be alive today, the breath in our lungs, uh, the heat in this building, the light we can see with all of it. Lord, be with us, we pray. We consecrate this time to you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, and for your love's sake. Amen. All right, today we're going to talk about um, the background of the book of Romans, and I want to do two major chunks, okay? and well, there'll be plenty of time to discuss, and then there'll be a big at the end to sort of wrestle with or explore so what okay the first chunk will be kind of the as you can see there on the sheet you grabbed when you came in the date the date we think romans was written and um what was happening in the world and in the city of rome around that time and then two um what does what does the book of romans tell us about why it was written what are the purposes that paul was conscious of when he penned the Book of Romans. Both those things, um, I think, are important. They give us greater access to what work was trying to be done here, right? Now, this is important because in the history of interpretation of the Book of Romans, it, that people haven't always been curious about that. Um, it's just been assumed that this is Paul's longest letter. And so just a smattering of quotes here from some very famous reformers, a couple from Martin Luther. This is what he had to say about uh, the book of Romans. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he, he should occupy himself With it every day, as their daily bread of the soul. Martin Luther also said this. When I understood this text, Romans, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Uh, John Calvin, J. Calves, as we call him, says this. If we have gained an understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. So there, in the history of interpretation, Romans has uh, been seen as the magnum opus, the great theological tome, and and John Calvin, Martin Luther, if you're Protestant and if you're in this room, uh, you probably are, uh, to some degree, uh, the, the Protestant tradition has really built most of its theology off of how they've interpreted the book of Romans. Um, but the way of reading Romans in this way, I want to suggest disregards why the letter was written. I don't think Paul self-consciously understood that he was writing the key to unlock all of scripture. Uh, I think he was writing a timely text for a timely reason, like most of the scriptures we have. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that then, because I think we, we gained something from getting closer to the ground, uh, that, uh, it seems like Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, may not have appreciated, which I I know is an audacious thing to say, but let's let's do it. All right. So time and social context. When was Romans written? This is important, uh, and you'll see why. I'm going to ask us to reflect on this. So the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle. Probably before the end of his third missionary journey. All right. Uh, uh, between 57 and 59 AD or CE. Now say more about the exact, maybe we can hone in on the exact time, but sometime about 25 years after Jesus died. Okay, so we're talking almost a generation. I think about it this way: uh almost like if 9-11 was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that's when the book of Romans was written. So think about how 9-11, how far ago that seems, the way that's impacted our culture, that's kind of the distance this letter has to Jesus's death and resurrection. Paul wrote this from Corinth before he took a collection to Jerusalem, and we're going to read about this. Hopefully you he brought uh, uh, scripture either on your phone or in hard coffee. If you don't have it memorize the book of Romans. We're going to read some things later, but he was going to head to Jerusalem and he was in Corinth. Now, I, I can't draw maps. I can't draw a period. But if you think of this as north, south, east, and west, Corinth was here, almost equidistant between Jerusalem and Rome in the Mediterranean. Okay, Listen to some distances here. He was 600 miles east of Rome and 800 miles west of Jerusalem when he wrote this. And what he had to do, and he tells them this, he has to travel to Jerusalem to deliver a collection and also kind of answer to some people that are like uh, sort of uh in Paul's vibe with the Gentiles. He's got to go to Jerusalem, deliver this collection, and then Quick math, 1,400 miles, go to Rome. Okay. Now, if you or I were going to take that trip, uh, it's still pretty ambitious, right? So we would talk about, well, you know, Lord willing, you know, like, am I planning to do this if the weather's good? And especially if you're doing part of it by boat. But 2,000 years ago, it's even more sort of like, gosh, I hope this happens. You know, I really hope this happens. All right. So that's where Paul is. Paul's in Corinth, Port City. Uh, and he's got to go this way 800 miles before he goes this way 1400 miles, and he writes a letter here and sends it ahead. Okay, of him visiting. All right, so that's where Paul is now. What's going on in Rome with this emperor named Claudius? So remember, remember 57 to 59. Okay. Um, we know from some ancient uh, Roman writings. That Claudius, in AD 41, so 15 or so years, 16, 17 years before Paul wrote this, that he prohibited meetings in synagogues for Jews. So in AD 41, like less than 10 years after Jesus rose from the dead, things started going bad for the Jews in Rome. Now, they may have been bad before that, but they there was sort of like a crackdown on their gathering in synagogues. And Suetonius, another Roman author, says that eight years later, so AD 49, so eight to ten years before Paul wrote this, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. So 41 crackdown, no meeting in synagogues, 49, you're out. And Suetonius tells us this: they were expelled, quote, because of the disturbances at the instigation of Crustus. Now, some followers, some scholars think that Crestus is the Greek form of Christ, that Suetonius is saying, basically, there was, in the late 40s, in Rome, a lot of Jewish uh, agitation and division and argument, creating uh, all kinds of ripples in the social fabric of Rome over Crestus, which is, we know this from the book of Acts, when Paul goes into synagogue and is like, hey, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they would try to stone him. Right. So there were synagogues, there were Jews believing in Jesus, and then there were Jews not believing in Jesus. And it caused, you know, a lot of friction and trouble in synagogues. And the emperor in Rome is like, if y'all can't figure this out, you got to leave. So that's the situation, right? So AD 49 kicks them all out. Track with me now. 54 AD. Five years later, Claudius dies. And when emperors die, edicts like this are sort of like forgotten about right it's not that you have to overturn them it's just like the edict is tied to the emperor and so when the next emperor comes to power now the previous edicts that the emperor gave are no longer binding essentially so uh so then so then the jews can kind of come back Makes sense Eighty forty nine, 49 they can kind of come back in all right so so let me write this down because I think this is important to kind of get a sense of what's going on here. So we've got uh, 41 AD, AD uh, you can't meet in synagogues, right? Then 49 AD, you got to get out. Then 54 AD, Claudius dies. Uh, we need that. Okay. And we're talking like thirty to sixty thousand people somewhere in there. So it's not a small number of people, right we are gonna have a larger number of people. All right. So Jews came in synagogues, Jews are kicked out. but by forty nine a d, it's not just Jews who are following Jesus. There's also Greeks following Jesus, also Gentiles following Jesus, but they're not kicked out, all right? So you have Gentiles coming into the Christian faith as guests or outsiders, meeting with Jews in synagogues because to become a Christian in in 39, 41, 45 AD, is becoming Jewish. Track with me here. There weren't separate Christian identities in the 40s it was like i'm following jesus as the messiah as a jew so greeks gentiles coming into judaism the jews get kicked out and the guests the outsiders are now running the house church show right now the now the gentiles who are brand new to this thing are the leaders for 5 years right 5 years no oversight whatever. Now, most scholars think that not all Jews left, but enough Jews left that the church went from primarily synagogue Jewish to more Gentile Greek, right? Shaped by that. Then after five years of being gone, the Jews start slowly coming back, right? And then we've got, what did I say? So let's just say 55 to 59, Jews come back, and then (laughs) 57 to 59, Paul writes, Rolls. What strikes you about this situation? <laughs> <laughs> what do you notice about just kind of a brief sketch of the history and the what's going on in Rome around when Paul writes this letter? here the whatever had. Not then, um, you really have to get it to be in charge and everything around. And, um, yeah, like that. yeah. So okay. Paul's writing to a Paul's writing to bring some sort of correction, right? Now we'll talk more about maybe what that correction is. But it seems like a volatile situation, right, Roxanne? Yeah. What else do you notice? Anything? Anything else occur to you that? As you wonder about the situation, you would think, I wonder if that was a problem. Yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, so Jews go back to Rome where everybody hated them. Yeah, so Jews go back to Rome where everybody hates them. This is important to remember. We're dealing with, Jews are sort of like um, the epitome of a traumatized people group. And macro traumas, you know, exiles and and their their scriptures are full of like, here's how God medicine trauma. (laughs) But then, but then in this situation, you've got Jews that have I mean, really, imagine like you were forced to leave Indianapolis. Just go. And you had to go like to a different culture. Right? Canada. No, somewhere like really different, right? And then and then you got to come back. Just how. Disorienting that would be how um you know the the injury or the harm you would incur. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tim. There's probably some sort of power struggle. And Jews. Huh. Probably some sort of power struggle between Gentiles and Jews. Which uh it which, as we will talk about when we get into the letter, we would we would maybe be curious about if we see evidence of a power struggle. And the letter tells us, yes, indeed. That is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So to sort of if any other thoughts about this? Yeah. back one place that was probably place show Yes. The Jews are coming back to home. They've been kicked out of home, coming back to home, and now someone else lives in your home. Like to adding insult to injury, right? Oof. And not only is somebody else squatting in your house, but they do things that are entirely offensive to you. Right? Now, when I say that, I don't mean like, they root for the bears instead of the coals. I mean, like. They they do they do things that disgust you. It's hard to, like, talk about this because we, we we just giggle when we get disgusted. But they they they. Um, yeah, it'd be like if you came back to your house and somebody defecated all over the bathroom. And saw no problem with it. And said, well, I'm not leaving. You have to live here with me. Like, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm trying to invoke in us the kind of disgust that Jews have for the practices of Greek people. It's it's hard to fathom for us. But that's kind of towards them. You know, they drink. And not only do they not poop in the toilet and they poop everywhere else, but they drink toilet water. This is crazy, how can I live with you? How can we do this? And that's just sort of cultural things, but we're also talking theological stuff too, yeah? All right, so Paul is writing a letter to a people that have been displaced and replaced, and now I, I, I think you can see in the text, Gentiles have tried to fill in where the Jews have abandoned, now the Jews are coming back, and there's a total power struggle for who's in charge, who gets to call the shots, how do we live together it's a crap show right all right this kind of background is really important to keep in mind when we're reading this because even if paul wanted to write sort of a systematic theology that in 1500 years would impress martin luther what what he's what he has to do of primary importance is pastoral theology he's got a he's got a really important task that if that doesn't happen, then who cares how the church receives this text, right? Because the Church of Rome will blow up, and you know the gospel will be seen as a fraud. Makes sense. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so uh, let's talk then about the the clues in the letter of 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 why Paul says he's writing, and so I've I've described this as. Two purposes, right? And the first purpose is, and I'm going to go grab a book over here just to show it to you. Um, the first purpose is what I've already said is that uh, there's a Jew and Gentile problem in Rome. And frankly, I'm trying to think through this. I, won't, I don't want to put a number on it, but we have much, much, much fewer. Uh, books in the New Testament if Jews and Gentiles got along from the jump. Most of the books we have in the New Testament, most of the things that Paul wrote were because Jews and Gentiles were trying to work out how to be one church together. Church conflict provoked a lot of the New Testament. And the book of Romans is no different. Um, there's a there's a nice little readable commentary called Reading Romans Backwards by a guy named Scott McKnight who's a good dude. He's a good dude. Um, And Scott basically says, most times people read Romans and they say, Romans chapter 1 through 11 is indicative. It's just truth. I'm sorry. Yeah, indicative. It's just declaring truth. And then Romans 12 through 16 is imperative. Here's what you do because of the truth. I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's kind of basically how a lot of scholars approach Romans. And he actually says, you have to look at the last five chapters, the application, to figure out why Paul's writing the thing in the first place. So you've got to read it backwards. This what I mean, by reading it backwards, go to the end, see the applications he's making from his teaching that gives you a better idea of what's going on there. And then we know how better to read the beginning. Does that make sense? Kind of a novel idea, but I think it's, I think it's helpful. So Scott says there's a power and a privilege problem. Who has the power? Who calls the shots? And how do they use that? And we see this like in Romans 14 about there's discussions about weak and strong, right? Some people think they know things. Some people have strong faith. Some people have weak faith. How do you deal with that? We won't have time to read that today. But I think think Scott's right. I think Paul writes uh, Romans in part because Jews and Gentiles are in a power struggle and it threatens the church threatens the gospel. And we'll return to this when we get back to our little text, Romans 1.18 through 3.31. So the purpose is pastoral theology to help Jews and Gentiles deal with their conflict. That's purpose number one. That's purpose number one. And I'll say more about that in purpose number two. Purpose number two is is more, that's, purpose number one is, like, the church, why am I writing, why does this church need this letter? Purpose number two is, why does Paul write it, <laughs> right? Because just because they need help doesn't mean Paul has to write it, you know? I, I, uh, I, I hit, like, 74 potholes when I entered Marion County on my way here, and uh, there's a problem with potholes in Marion County, right? And I, we could talk about that problem out there, but I'm not taking responsibility for that. I'm not writing a letter about it. So, Paul, for some reason, felt like the church in Rome was his responsibility to write to. Um, and let's, let me give you a few uh, interesting bits about uh, the church in Rome and Paul. Uh, Paul didn't plant this church which is significant, because he planted a lot of churches. And most of the letters he wrote, he wrote to churches that he planted. Right? He knows people there. They know him. They uh, heard him speak, and they're like, he wasn't very impressive. You know? And then he writes First Corinthians, and he's like, oh, you want impressive? I'll show you impressive. You know? Or, uh, when I was with you, you believed this gospel, and now I leave. In Galatians, how quickly you've abandoned the thing that I told you. Right? Philippians, look out for the dogs right? Paul planted a lot of churches, but he didn't plant the church in Rome. This is significant, and we'll get back to that. The second is, he wants to go there. He wants to go to Rome. And the third is, he wants to not only go to Rome, he wants them to give him money to go to Spain. Paul's writing a fundraising letter to people he hasn't met. All right. Now, don't take, let's not take my word for it. I want us, uh, I want to, oh man, is it that boring? I want us to show, I want us, I want to show um, what, I want, I want to, I want, don't just take my word for it. Let's read it. Let's see Paul say it. Okay. We're going to come to Romans 16 here. Gosh, I got to hurry. We're going to, we're going to talk about Romans 16 uh, at the end. Most scholars believe that Romans 16 was a letter of commendation or recommendation for Phoebe and greetings from Paul that was appended to the end of Rome, the, the the letter to the Romans. Right, so they were two separate things that went with Phoebe, and they kind of got put together. So let's take a look. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Romans one. <clears throat> oh, interesting. Uh open your eyes Romans 1. And let's read uh, Romans 1 uh, 8 through 15. And and I'm gonna read this. I would love to like uh, have y'all read it, but I want to make sure that people on our uh, on Zoom can hear it too. So I'm just reading from the NRSV. And I'm gonna we're gonna read Romans 1, 8 through 15, and then we're gonna read Romans 15, 14 through 29. So bookends of this letter. Okay. And I want you to listen to what you notice. All right, here we go. This is Paul. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son, is my witness that I without ceasing remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you, for I am longing to see you. So that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome all right there's a lot going on there we're going to come back to that I want to read now Romans fifteen boop, 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 boop. Boop, boop, boop. all right Romans fifteen this is 14 through 29 um this is after Paul said has given them a, sort of a blessing and a benediction he says this in Romans fifteen 14. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, on some points I have written to you rather boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, and the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to an obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far as around as Elycrium, I have faithfully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus, I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. This is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints for Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have accomplished this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ." The word of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of similarities in these two little texts. Paul says the same things essentially to the Romans. I'm going to point them out for the sake of time. Uh, Otherwise we could do a fun little 45 minute inductive uh, thing, but I'm going to do it for the sake of time. Here we go. Notice Paul speaks of his desire to see them and why he hasn't been able to. In both texts, right? You heard that, right? And it's sort of an apology. You know, ah, I really wanted to see you guys, but I've been busy with good work. You know, apologies, right? Uh, he says, I've often intended to come to you, but been prevented. That's in chapter one, verse 13. And then um, in 15, 20 through 22, he's like, I've been busy. I got this collection to take to Jerusalem. I got things to do, right? That's the first one. Notice in both texts, he talks about um, generosity of Gentiles to Jews. In both texts, he talks about how Greeks want to share things with Jews. This is important. Also notice he compliments them. He's very complimentary in, uh, in Romans. uh, So, so there's a, Interesting. For somebody, for a people who haven't met him, he's trying not to come across as, hey, I'm coming to visit you. You're welcome. You get a real legit apostle in your in your midst. You know, aren't you too blessed to be stressed? Like he's trying not to have that vibe. Right. So he says things like. This is wonderful. Um Sometimes you just need the good old fashioned hard version because it's too hard to navigate in your in your phone. He says, uh, he says in verse eleven of chapter one, "I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you." And then the Greek is like abrupt, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There's like this. Presumption on Paul's part that he catches, and he's like, of course, what I mean is mutual encouragement, right? Right? You catch that? It's fascinating to me. And then in in chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, he says, I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Man, that's flattering, right? Nevertheless, on some points I have written to you rather boldly because of the grace given to, by way of reminder, right? You're, you're smart and good and great, but I've just been dropping little reminders for you. Notice, notice he's complimenting them, and he's also trying to hold out, I've got something for you too. It's kind of a delicate dance that he's doing, right? Because so, he can't just show up in Rome and be like, I'm a big deal. He has to show up in Rome to be welcomed. And then finally, he says, um, (laughs) verse 13 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, a lot of scholars think that's like saving souls. But the harvest Paul's reaping, among other Gentiles, that he mentions in this text, is a collection for Jerusalem. And right after that, he says, I am indebted to both Greeks and to barbarians. Why does he mention barbarians? Where did they come from? What's Conan got to do with this? Right? Well, in, in chapter 15, um, he says... Um, One moment, please. He says, uh, now with no further place during these regions, I desired for many years to come to you when I go to Spain. And he says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem because Greeks from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Um. They were pleased to do this and indeed they owe it to them. So now Paul's laying it on, right? For if the Gentiles have come to share in spiritual blessings, how much more should they share their material wealth with poor Jews? So when I've done this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Guess who lives in Spain? barbarians. Oh, maybe that's why Paul brings them up in the beginning of the letter about how Paul's indebted to the barbarians. So if you trust me and esteem me, you'll be indebted to them too. See? All right. So let's put this together a little bit. Paul didn't plant this church, but he's got to fix A pastoral problem because the pastoral problem isn't just bad for that church. It creates a problem for Paul because Paul's ministry is funded by the generosity of Greeks along the way. Right. And that's testimony or witness to the Jews that, hey, these Greeks are okay. I didn't starve today because some Greek in Macedonia who's God, dear God, uncircumcised, paid for my meal. This is huge sort of missional, evangelistic, reconciling work that Paul's doing via the material things of Greeks. Paul's going to Rome not only to be like, hey, it's great to finally be here, but because he can't get to Spain without their generosity and support. So this is a fundraising letter. But here's another problem Paul has. Not only do Jews and Greeks not like each other and get along, the only, about the only thing they can agree on is that barbarians are lousy, filthy Cretans. The only thing that brings them together is their mutual dislike of the people living in Spain. Talk about a difficult issue for Paul to sort of reckon with, right? All right. Isn't that exciting? Isn't this exciting stuff? Like, Paul's actually dealing with real-world issues, and so the book of Romans comes out of this for Paul as a good idea. This will solve the problems I have. Versus Paul floating up on a cloud and this being dropped down Joseph Smith style on golden as a golden boat. Right? It's way more interesting, I think, if we read the text. All right. One final addendum here, and then we've got a, we'll have hopefully about 20 minutes for conversation. So Romans 16, then, if you want to turn to your Bibles, Romans 16, we're not going to have a chance to read it all. There's a whole class on Phoebe. She's kind of a, she's a oh, she's a badass. Sorry. Uh, Sorry for the PG 13 language. She's a badass. And uh, Paul sends this letter from Corinth to Rome without him with a woman who then becomes the person who's authorized by Paul to give Paul's, uh, to be Paul's authorized presence in Rome to teach the letter, answer questions about the letter, and Give Paul's input on how the how the letter should be delivered, how it should be spoken, which is really important. Which we will come back to in weeks three through five, six, seven, maybe eight. Um, we'll come back to that. All right. So we can't. I can't touch on Phoebe, but she's amazing. But Romans sixteen, I uh, think this, as I said, it's a it's a separate letter of commendation for Phoebe. And it includes a lot of greetings. You guys are familiar maybe with this last part here. we got a woman named Junia who's an apostle. we got Pris- Priscilla and a ki- Achilla called Prisca here, uh, who's a, a missionary couple, and it's significant because she's named first. All right, I just want to say some comments about these names, and then let's open it up for conversation. There's about 28 named people here in Romans 16. In 10, 10 to 16 of them, Paul seems to know personally. This is important. This is important. Right? When Paul says, greet so-and-so, right? At least half of these people he knows personally. So for half of them, he's saying, hey, that guy or gal that you know, that you like, guess what? They know me too. Isn't that cool? So say hi to them. Maybe, Maybe see what they think of me. Right? Maybe get a vibe check on me from these awesome people that lead your churches, right? The big deal. These greetings are Paul trying to build social and relational capital in Rome for when he comes. Perfectly appropriate and really necessary, right? So ten to sixteen seem no fault personally. There's Greek, Latin, and Jewish names here. There's like seven Jewish names. Uh, with a, a mom of a Jewish person, three Latin names, and eighteen Greek names. What's the significance of that? Right, Paul's greeting everybody. All these people say hi to them. I love them. They love me. Oh look, look at all. The, look at the Jews and Greeks playing down together. <laughs> right, it's a beautiful picture of new creation. Right, so Paul's basically saying. I have figured out a way to live at peace with everyone, and you can too. That's This is the stuff we miss because we don't really live in an honor-shame culture, but Paul is demonstrating the honor of reconciled relationships to leverage a little bit of shame to say, you should become reconciled. This happens over and over and over again in this letter. Uh, there's also seven women named by name. There's Phoebe, Rufus's mom, Neurosis's sister, and the sisters of the household of Asyncritus. Sorry, seven women named by Paul, plus Phoebe, plus Rufus's mom, sorry, plus Neurosis's sister, plus the sisters in the household of As- Asyncritus. I like to think that there's 20 sisters and so he names more women than men, but that's probably not right. But anyway, he names a lot of women, a lot of women. Um, most scholars think that the people he names either know of him or know him. Most scholars think that the people he names are significant people in the churches. I mean, one's apostle. We know Pris and Achilla, uh taught Apollos, right? You can learn that in, in the Corinthians correspondence. So these are like ballers. These are big deals. Um, and so Paul here then is trying to build social relational capital that he can then spend he gets there. All right, let's recap and then I'd love to hear like things that are stirring for you or things that you want to ask about. All right. Paul has never met these people. They don't really like each other. They don't like barbarians, but Paul is coming there on his way to Spain and he wants them to support him financially to go reach the barbarians, because Jesus loves the barbarians, and Paul loves Jesus, so Paul loves barbarians. Right? It's pretty simple for Paul. So Paul, Paul has to demonstrate clout, build rapport, garner esteem, so that they'll trust and financially support his missionary work in Spain. And in order to do that, he's got to solve an unreconciled cultural theological crap storm in the Church of Rome. Maybe I just could have said that in two minutes, but it's fun to walk through it all. Right? All right. Thoughts? Questions? Things that you notice? Things that are bothering you or exciting you? Tim? Um, I'm also kind of wondering, like, how did Paul view the Church of Rome, the Church of the Church, because that's the Super, like if you see this becoming like like really influential in the future yeah and, uh, like I need to fix this now. Yeah yeah Rome was the center of the world and for a Jew the temple was the center of the universe but Rome was the center of the Greco-Roman world and it goes without saying that it's the most important city um and the like for for as Paul thinks about the missionary work to Greeks and Gentiles it's crucial. Yeah, I mean that's a. I didn't mention that because it's more macro, and Paul doesn't like say that. But I think that's an operation, Tim, one hundred percent. Yeah. Add that to the list. Yeah, Roxanne. Did that you know this church and what happened to them? Where are they? I'm sure that um, there's somebody who's written a dissertation or twenty on that. Um, most people think, like, for instance, Priscilla and Achilla. We know they were in Corinth. now they're in Rome. Rome, a lot of people travel to Rome, right? A lot of people think Phoebe was a from Syncre which is the port city in Corinth, that she was a patron of a house church there. So she probably she at least funded the church. but uh, it's it's hard to conceive in a Roman paterfamilius kind of thing where someone would have people meet in their home and pay for the church for food and things, and not pastor the freaking church. It just it would be so counter to how Romans thought, right? So Phoebe was probably a single woman, head of her household, um, and probably was the pastor there, but was a businesswoman. She was wealthy, and so she um, she probably made frequent trips to Rome. So the reason I mention all that is that... um. Most people think that Jews from cities that Paul evangelized matriculated to Rome, Pris- uh, Prisca and Achilla being like a good example of that, and they planted the church. So sort of like people who knew Paul started the church, but there's no official documentation of that. Yeah, it's plausible, I guess. you, know. you watch you know, people Yep. Yep. It's also like some scholars use that as a reason to say this Romans 16 was not a part of the correspondence to Rome. It was another circular letter in um, in sort of around Corinth that got tacked on to the, in, to the letter to Romans. And I just don't, it's not, that's not persuasive to me. I think, I think because of how Jews, because Jews were expelled and then came back like the opening of the doors to Rome for Jews again would have been a, this is my conjecture, a huge draw to Jewish people to get back into that city, um, especially business people or people who travel frequently, right? Would have been a, a great surprise and it would have been a, a luring draw back to Rome. Yeah. That's just yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they're struggling. yeah, Roxanne just said, yeah. Paul was like trying, trying to reconnect with people he had mentored or ministered with who were probably desperately struggling with the problem in Rome. You know that this, uh, this exodus and then migration back, contributed to. Right. We know that other churches that didn't have that also had Jewish Gentile problems. I think, I think this timeline, though, helps us understand that this was exacerbated. This exacerbated things. Because we really don't have another church that was planted apart from a just as a fully Greek-speaking church without any Jewish influence at all. Right. And even though we don't have evidence for the Church of Rome in that, five years is a long time. Five years is a long time to. To stop washing your hands when you eat, right, or sure we can eat that we can eat that rabbit that was sacrificed to Zeus, right because Zeus doesn't exist anyway, there's only one God, right, and then Jews show up and there's like poop all over their bathroom and they're drinking toilet water, and they're just, just quite astounded. How could I even possibly live in this house that That's a unique missional context, I think um. Yes, Jeff. Jeff asked if I could repeat the questions being asked. Thank you, Jeff, for that reminder. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Brooke. Like, the idea of, um, like feeling through, um, and writing real formal problems, but almost like not quite like manipulating from sort of to get yeah, like accomplishments, but kind of like people could see and the author like high, like holy. Yep. 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 So, like, seeing it that way, sort of like Yeah, I get that. Sure. Brooke just said, like, um, Paul, St. Paul, St. Paul is usually seen as like very saintly, right? And sort of like always doing the right, like, Paul's sort of like George Washington you know, plus a masters of divinity, right? So he, he doesn't lie and he, and he's very always virtuous, etc. cetera. And, and Brooke just commented like seeing Paul, um, seeing like more worldly earthly motivations for Paul, that's part of it. And then also, um, I mentioned Paul using shame and, and I think that really scandalizes a lot of, those of us who don't come from honor-shame cultures, like we have a guilt-innocence culture. Uh, We don't really, we don't understand how honor-shame works in Paul's day. And we have honor and shame in our culture too, and we don't understand it very well, right? So this makes people uncomfortable, I think, that Paul would use somebody else's good example and hold it up before people who are like, can't even even get on the same page about, well, I'm not sharing money with you because you'll just spend it on meat sacrifice to idols, right? They can't even share possessions. And Paul holds an example of Greeks up to say, I'd like for you to work out your finances so you can give money to me. And that in some way is shaming them. Because this good example casts more light on how you're behaving, right? We've been taught that that's wrong. Now, there's a whole... Linton class on shame, I seriously, and whole entire class on shame that I cannot summarize here in two minutes. But I guess I guess I would just say uh, I guess I would just say, Brooke, that um, that that love is more robust and rugged than we often give it credit for. And I think that Paul Paul is loving the Romans here. And he's trying to love the barbarians at the same time. And anytime you're trying, and he's trying to love Jews, Greeks, and barbarians. And anytime you're trying to love three people that don't get along, somebody's gonna get offended at you. Somebody's gonna get offended. And usually it's the person who your love indicates needs to change. Makes sense. Usually it's the person whom your love indicates needs to change. And I think we also have sort of an allergy to offending people because a lot of people offend people in really ungodly ways. They're just offensive and they don't care, right? Um, and that's unfortunate. Now, there's way more to say about that, Brooke, but that's a quick response to your great comments. There's a whole Sunday school class in that company. Other thoughts or things that occur to you or questions about this? Yeah, Paula. It's, it's kind of comforting in a way to me because um it, you know want that bit now. I know like they were having all this complex. It was hard being a pastor and trying to you know figure out everybody here to get along and yeah. have the same problem still. So I guess it's just hard to yes. Paula says it's it's kind of comforting in a way because. We're still a mess. <laughs> right. And and Paul is trying to deal with like eternal spiritual things, but also really earthly material next month things at the same time. And it's really hard to do both. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's that's one of the reasons why when I look at this and I take it from like how Martin Luther saw it to more of like what we're talking about. This is a fundraising letter. And a pastoral theology like reconcile letter? It gives me hope. Paul's doing the same work I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make a living. And I'm trying to get people to knock off being cotton-headed nanny muggins. Mm-hmm. And I'm a cotton-headed nanny muggins You know what I mean? Like, so like Paul's doing the same work I'm doing. And now I can now I can go back to our we'll go back to our text next week and be like, well, how is this first part of Romans? Solving these problems, or we can like okay. So Paul did this, so that means we can imagine and play over here, right? You know, it's so I'm I'm going to propose next week. Um, one of the things we're going to propose as we go is that Paul is using a rhetorical strategy of called diaphrenia. He's 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 dialoguing with a, um antithesis, and he is completely smoking it. So we're going to see that Paul creates a position that then he completely eviscerates. Now why? Is he mean? Now wait, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we shouldn't use wise and eloquent words or elaborate arguments. Just the, Just knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. Matt, are you saying... Then in Romans, he disagrees with himself? Yes, I am. Because it's a different context. He's doing, he has to do different work, right? So, so one of the things we're gonna talk about, Paula, is why would why would the people in Rome listen to Paul? Yeah, Achille and Prisca, Priska, you like him, but you're Greek, so you would like him. Why should I, right? You would. Why should I? care about what you have to say, Paul needs to demonstrate that he is competent and intelligent and rhetorically astute. He needs to impress the people in Rome that he knows his stuff. He needs to be impressive. He needs to garner esteem. Right? Now, you know, I can think of a dozen Uh, celebrity preachers, and that's all they do, right? So That's not saying that garnering esteem and being impressive is always virtuous, but when you have to win over a group of people who aren't predisposed to trust you, maybe it is good to demonstrate you know what you're talking about. Maybe it is, and to do it in a culturally appropriate way, right? So this so, so why would Paul do this? Well, now we have a little more access to why. He needs to build rapport. He needs to build trust. They need to go, man, I can't wait for Paul to get here. This is great. It's great stuff. Give me more. I never see anybody do that. You really smoked That kind of thing. Which again, Brooke is like, eh. <laughs> right? Takes Paul off of a cloud and puts him on the ground, which is where he lives. So that's an example, Paula, of kind of where we're going and why this stuff matters. And I'm excited about this stuff. Yeah. Leah. This is a little bit thunder from next week, but what do you do with the tension, I guess, between what you said, like, Paul and writing this to reconcile Jews uh, and Greeks in the same church, and this letter has been a source and like, a um, decent amount of the answer, Yes. Yeah, Leah saying, what do you do with the fact that this, sorry if I talked over the rest of your question, what do I do with the, the fact that Paul's writing to reconcile Jew and Gentile, but Romans has been used, um, especially Romans 1, 18 through 32, has been used to demonize Jews. Um, they're legalistic, works of the law, right? All they care about is earning their salvation. This is one of the reasons I picked this text. is because I... I discovered five or 10 years ago that my theology was anti-Semitic and I had no idea how I got there because I didn't want it to be, right? I was like, dang, I hold, I hold a lot of anti-Judaism beliefs or anti-Jewish beliefs. I don't really want that. So what a choice. I can get mad at the people who were telling me that's anti-Semitic, which is very appealing, right? I just say, no, I'm not, right? But then I'm gaslighting Jewish people that should bother me. Or I say, holy crap, how'd that happen? Right? And and so part of the work we're doing here, Leia, is to say, um, yes, anti-Semitism is, is bad. Yes, this text has been used like that, but what if it doesn't have to be used like that? What if we can read this in a way that doesn't lead to um the worst of anti-Jewish interpretations. And I think, I think not only, not only can we do that, but I think it actually is that's more faithful to why it was written. So we can we can do a lot of things in scripture, right? Play fast and loose with it. But I actually think this is what Paul, I don't think Paul was a Jew. He was an anti-Semitic, right? So we got to get back on track. That's one of my pastoral theology reasons for doing this class. So we're go- yeah we're gonna get there. Whew. We have time for just a few more questions or thoughts even that you wanna add. Yeah, first, Lucas. i was curious if there's any evidence uh, that Paul's asking for money to like particularly wealthy people or from just like you know common people living from the next. Yep. Deal actually. Yeah. That happening maybe with the asking for money? Yeah. yeah. Lucas says, is, is Paul asking wealthy people for money or everybody for money? And how does this relate to the shame that he's employing? Let me say one more thing about the shame. All of us here, I think, have a really complicated relationship with shame, right? If we become aware of it, it's usually toxic and internalized, right? Um, but people are... People are acting in honorable ways in this meeting, not based upon their own shame, but based upon loving each other. So I, I'm I'm going to just name a few things. Okay, the first is um, Mary Ellen's wearing a mask. She doesn't have to, right? You probably have a little something, a little schmutz, right? But but she's honoring us by wearing a mask. Yeah. Now, she, now she's not do, doing that, I presume, out of a toxic sense of shame. And if she wears a mask, she'll finally feel okay about herself. No, she's like trying to honor us, right? And we appreciate that, right? You aren't talking over me or answering your phone in here, right? Why? Because that would be a little shameful for you. We have social conventions that you're, right? Like, no one's turned the other direction facing that way and playing a video game, right? So, and there's, well, we can name 8,000 more, right? Couldn't we? We can name 8,000 more. All of them are just happening. We're all uh, we're all agreeing to it. And none of us are paying attention to try to solve some shame problem. We're just living in a way that honors each other. Does that make sense? So when I talk about honor and shame, I'm talking about it on that level. like. All of us have social conventions that we a- abide by because to not abide by them would be shameful or dishonoring. And that's great. We, need, we actually need that. It'd be so hard to lead this class if we weren't doing 8,000 things together that were honor- honoring each other. So that's the level on which I'm talking about Paul sort of sort of operating in his culture in similar ways versus like, Mary Ellen, wouldn't you feel better about yourself if you wore a mask today to class? I just want you to consider, Mary Ellen, how bad you'd feel if everybody came down with group or whatever you <laughs> consumption. Wouldn't you feel bad about yourself? Now that's awful. That's that's junk, right? But that's not what's going on with Mary Ellen. So we can talk about, this is the class, toxic shame, what I just did to Mary Ellen, and healthy shame. I love people here. I don't want to make them sick. That would be shameful. I'm going to honor the people here by wearing a mask. Right? Healthy shame is good. And, and one of the ways that's revealed is just be in relationship with somebody who's shameless. Who can't experience shame. It's tragic. Narcissists are shameless. It's tragic. Right? Man, that was a long rant. I don't even remember the question, but there, there it is. Yeah. All right. Let's end it there. Uh, thanks to all that joined online. Next week, next week, The next four weeks are going to be like super in the text. I'm going to talk about Greek. I'm going to talk about Philo of Alexandria. I'm going to talk about uh, the problems created in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Right? Um, And I'm going to suggest that Paul is giving voice to a character in Romans 1, 18 through 32 and other places in Romans 2 that he's then going to argue with and defeat. And how this is a normal way of oration and rhetoric. And there's cues or clues in the text because there aren't quotation marks. Greek, Ancient Greek does not have quotation marks. So, so people who were trained in oration and rhetorical uh, writing were trained to give cues in the text to indicate this is what's happening. And we see them here. What this will do is deliver us from having to take some of the stuff that's in Romans one eighteen through thirty two that doesn't occur anywhere else in Paul's thought and try to mash it into Paul's thought. So we have some sort of Frankenstein gospel, right? So that's that's the work we're going to do. It's going to take four weeks. So uh, you know, bring your caffeine. Go. Do you know if there's like a translation that of- like Romans in, in that way where you don't have to like know I'm, I'm going to give you two so I'm going to, uh, there's a book so I probably should mention this I probably should have already mentioned this uh, there's a book called uh, Beyond Justification Liberating Paul's Gospel and it's written by a New Testament prof at Duke named Doug Campbell and one of his students, John Depew John actually lives in town, he's a friend of mine and Ooh. <laughs> uh, too much too <laughs> much that did it. It's too heavy. The book isn't the book's very readable. It's not that heavy, but um, uh, uh, hey, but uh, let me just put this out there now. Uh, we're going to do a live interview, uh, podcast recording on uh, Saturday, March twenty third at seven p.m. with John about this book, and in his appendix, he's got what you're asking for—a script. I'm going to print that out, and we're going to take a look at it. I'm also reading a dissertation by a guy who teaches up in Canada named Andrew Rolera. He's another friend of mine, and he's got another proposed script of the same verses and chapters. I'm going to print that out, and we're going to look at them both together. Okay, so we're going to do that together, um, but i got to figure out if I want to do that next week and just have you look at it and then piece it together. I'm reticent to do that because I'm not trying to convince you that this is the right thing to do. I just want us to inhabit it and see what it what it does. And I'd rather, I, if I feel like if I show it to you first and then teach on it, it'll feel like an apology or an argument for it. And I am excited about it, but I, um, I want to reckon with the power I have, you know, like that. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to like spoon. I don't want to put food in your mouth because you're adults. Can I pray for us? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and that it does, uh, it reads us. It reads us and knows us. Uh, We know ourselves better when we see uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ there. So thank you for this time. Thank you for the great stirring questions. Bless, we pray, our worship now as we move into word and sacrament. May we meet you and see you and see you in each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, you can leave tables here because um, there's gonna be a little after church table group that's gonna be in here. So you can leave all your tables here, uh, thanks.